Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I'll be joining uh, with the guest, Bill Konkoleski. Konkoleski? Bill, is that right? Konkoleski, yep. Okay. I'll be joining you in just a moment. Uh, first, I wanted to uh, thank everybody for listening. And uh, if you're enjoying the program, I, I ask you to go over to Amazon, uh, take a look at my books, give it a rating. That helps uh, spread the word, helps get the uh, people interested in what we're doing here. So if you uh, can take a little bit of time to do that, I would certainly appreciate this. Uh, Bill, my guest, has been the state director of the Michigan chapter of the MUFON UFO Network since 2004. After a lifetime of his own UFO and abduction encounters, he spent the last two decades actively investigating these otherworldly phenomenon, trying to make some sense of the bizarre events that have happened to him personally. He's discovered, he, what he's discovered <laughs> confronting these cosmic mysteries is that reality is far stranger than he could have imagined. Bill is the author of the autobiographical Experiencer Raised in Two Worlds, as well as the newly released Experiencer Two Worlds Collide. And his personal abduction experience have been chronicled in the sci-fi documentary Abduction Diaries, streaming documentary Abducted by Aliens, UFO Encounters of the Fourth Kind, and the ABC News special UFO Seeing is Believing. He has also served as a consultant to the History Channel's Hangar One and UFO Hunters, National Geographic Channel's The Truth Behind, as well as the Science Channel's Uncovering Aliens and Close Encounters. Bill, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks so much for having me on, Kevin. Well, I don't think it's really necessary for me to say what inspired your interest in UFOs, because obviously it's your own experiences in UFOs. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, let me do that. Well, let's do this. Um, obviously, you are an abductee, an experiencer. Give us a little bit about what that experience was like, uh, how, it, how it maybe is related to other experiences um, or other abduction phenomena, what, what is the same, what is different, how, how your experience may have differed, all of that stuff in a nutshell. Sure. Um, my very first memory in life at age two is of a little gray entity coming up to the side of my crib. Uh, it wasn't anything I remembered later or was dreamlike in any way. It was absolutely real, burned into my memory, never forgot it. I had uh, an experience at age four where they pulled me out of body. Age seven, I had an experience where um, they actually cut my arm. I still have the scar. And then um, in my, uh, my teen years, uh, several experiences, early 20s, several experiences. They tended to taper off, actually as I got around 30, but, uh, you know, the, the types of experiences I have really go ac uh, across a wide gamut. Uh, I've had experiences while I'm alone, um, experiences while I'm with others, experiences while I'm in bed, experiences when I'm in a car. Um, so it's a broad variety of things. And if part of the question is why I don't focus on the term abductee, is it was really a term that was in vogue, I think, during the 80s and 90s to cover the broad spectrum of contact experience. Um, it just happened to be what was um, used at the time. And it's a very victim-oriented language. And, and it's not to say that some of the things have, that have happened to me have been you know, unpleasant. I've had unpleasant experiences, but I've had some neutral experiences, even what I consider some positive experiences. So it, it's... I don't think people are ever going to go back to the term contactee. Um, that of the negative baggage that that goes along with that early term of all these people making up stories of uh, meeting Jesus on Venus and things like that. But um, but yeah, uh, that's why I, I I really think the term experiencer is a good modern term for it and um that that's what uh, i'd like to consider myself i've always thought of the difference between contactee and i'll use your term experiencer is that the contactee um was sought out to be given messages and rides in airplanes or flying saucers and that sort of thing and the experiencer was one who um, wasn't necessarily happy about the experience. Uh, they weren't given great messages. They weren't given rides all over the solar system <laughs> and that sort of thing. It's sort of a dichotomy between the two experiences. And it's clear to me that the contactees, for the most part, were inventing their tales. Uh, George Adamski, of course, inventing his. I think he was mm -hmm. once quoted as saying if it wasn't uh, for uh, prohibition, he could have gotten away from the the UFO stuff. Um, it's so, something of that that nature. He was looking at it as a big con, and it seemed to me that the experiencers are those who uh, are sort of uh, uh, reluctant participants, I guess is the way to put it. But the question I would have, and it's kind of the question that I think a lot of people have, is there any 
corroborative evidence that you have for your experiences uh, that, that, that we could look at in an objective light? Well, uh, I can, a few things, um, I suppose. One is, I admittedly, like I said, I have a scar on my arm. But then again, somebody could always say, well, you know, you could have gotten that scar any any possible way. Uh, there are a few incidents uh, for which they, I have additional witnesses, uh, two of which uh, the people will probably be more than happy to discuss their side of it, though um, in the one experience that I had back when I was seven years old, the neighbor boy who was six at the time, uh, he saw a mist. We both There was a mist that rolled into my backyard while we were both back there climbing trees. And he saw the mist, but he didn't see the gray entity that was in the mist like I did. So he would at least corroborate as much as we were playing in the backyard in this strange mist kind of like a stage fog rolled through the backyard and kept going through the neighborhood. Strangely, it seemed intelligently controlled. And then uh, when I was 18, uh, two other friends of mine in the same car as me, we all saw the same UFO show in the sky, which was we were parked at the time in front of another friend's house. It was dark. A uh, blue ball of light arced over our car about the height of two telephone poles and then a red ball of light, pardon me, followed by a white ball of light that zigzagged all over the sky, followed by a red ball of light that grew and shrank in the middle of the sky. We all three saw that. The, the next day, um, a neighbor, uh, not a neighbor, a co-worker, pardon me, um, told me before I had a chance to tell him of what he'd seen the previous night, which was of a blue UFO, which I thought also, to me, corroborated my my what had happened, my sighting. And then uh, in the mid-90s, um, I had an experience with a girl that I was dating, and uh, we were up on a hill. It was dark at night, and um, we were frozen in place as three gray entities came up and inspected us, primarily her. And then um, once we were able to move again, we hustled out of there, um, and while I didn't tell her what had happened to us had anything to do with me, I suspect she knew it had everything to do with me and very quickly broke up with me and we haven't had contact since. Those are the ones that are off the top of my head. Well, it strikes me that two of the three are just UFO sightings and not necessarily, or sightings of some kind, but not necessarily uh, corroboration of an abduction experience. Uh, you could say that. Like I said, in the first case, uh, the boy saw the mist, but not the gray alien in it. Um, and the second one, it was, yeah, a UFO sighting. Now, the UFO sighting is a lot more interesting than I described. And, uh, you know, call it a plug for my book, but I go into detail um, some of the, 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 the stranger aspects of it. Um, but, yeah, um, the other guys just for what they for their part in it, they just saw some strange lights in the sky. And in the third case. Yeah, I'm in, no longer in contact with the young woman that uh, that I shared the experience with. And probably haven't been in contact with her for decades. Yeah, 95 was when that happened. And as far as my track record goes with uh, corroborating witnesses, I think I'm actually better than most people and their um, ability to have to find any sort of corroboration to, to what they're talking about. You know, and and 
and and I get it. You know, people want me to not just share what happened. They want me to prove what happened. And it, it puts one sort of in a catch because these things, these beings, these entities, these intelligences, whatever you want to call them, are very good at what they do, at covering their tracks. And, and so you're stuck in a situation that either you can share what had happened to you, um, you not being an expert in their technology uh, and possibly being able to objectively best describe what's happening to you, you could you could either share what happened to you without being able to bring everything into a court of law, you know, for evidence, or or you could wait until you have that hardcore evidence that is difficult to dispute, but that reduces the number of experiences able to share their accounts to a very very tiny percentage, and so I thought, well, I'll be brave enough to tell what happened to me as it happened to me as best as I understand it. And uh, what evidence I have is what evidence I have. Um, if the rest of my account um, seems valid and people are able to get something from it, so be it. If not, it, it is what happened to me. And when I wrote it, uh, both of these accounts, it was essentially started as notes to myself. Um, sort of a journal of what had happened to me, and then I uh, sort of formatted them into book form and, and put them out that way. So these things I wrote as much for myself as a clear record of what had happened, as you know, as to to share my story with the world. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you, and we'll get to those in just a moment here because uh, I'm going to have to take a break. But I did want to. Uh, suggest that there are many fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at xzbn.net. So take a look at the listings at the X-Zone uh, website, and I'm sure you're going to find something there that will spark your interest, Not in including, of course, this show as well. Uh, and so when we come back, I'm going to ask specifically about uh, terrestrial explanations for the, these phenomenon and uh, some other the questions I think that are avoided when we discuss these sorts of things, um, meaning the experiences or the UFO sightings and the, kind of the lack of corroborative evidence that, that we find in these sorts of things. Your books are Experiencer, Raised in Two Worlds, as well as Experiencer, Two Worlds Collide, which for some reasons reminds me of the movie World When Worlds Collide, but has no relevance here. The website is www.experiencer.me, and uh, mine is uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And for those of, those of you who are interested in my uh, military background, you can take a look at www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com. Vietnam Ground Zero is a single word uh, for those of you who are interested in looking at that. And as I say, it's kind of my experiences in... Uh, the military and how it relates to some of the research that I've been doing over the last many, many years. But I think you'll find some interesting things there as well. So as I say, when we come back, we'll be looking at some of these other aspects of, I'm going to say at the abduction phenomenon, because that's what most of us know it as. And uh, we'll be here with Bill and he'll help us uh, maybe understand some of that. So we'll be back right after this. So please stick around.
Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400 horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. I am back with Bill Konkoleski. We're talking, well, I call it alien abduction. He calls it experience. Uh, when we went away, I suggested I had a question that I, I wanted to ask. And I, the, the problem is with these sorts of experiences, there's usually nothing other than the testimony of the person who experiences it. Much of it gathered under hypnosis, which is a very poor way of gathering. But there, I, I think a lot of these uh, abduction uh, scenarios are explained in terrestrial terms, meaning things like sleep paralysis. And I understand that sleep paralysis doesn't explain them all. I'm merely suggesting this as a very real explanation for some cases of alien abduction based on the descriptions provided by the um, experiencer. I was going to say victim, and I know that's really not quite the right term, but the, the person who experiences it. And we look at that sort of thing, and we look at the hypnotic regression involved in that. And, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I, I get the impression that you haven't had a lot of hypnotic regression to, to access these memories. But we know from scientific study that even under hypnosis, people can be easily led into the direction that the, the operator, the hypnotist, wants it to go. And, and sometimes you can see that in the transcripts of the um, uh, sessions with those people. So uh, I guess the question is, what do you make of some of the uh, terrestrial explanations? Do you buy that uh, some terrestrial explanations are legitimate, uh, that probably the number of abductions or experiences are are much smaller than we've been led to believe by all the books and the magazines. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, there's a lot to, to respond to to there. Yes. Um, now, I, I guess the first thing I would say is it really depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go in terms of wading into the high strangeness of the phenomena and all the um, seemingly unexplainable phenomena that that come along with it that we don't really even have good language for. 
So I am going to do my best and not to get too unusual um, with regards to the answers and, and, and tackle some of the specific things. In fact, in order, you had mentioned sleep paralysis first. Yes. Now, when I was, when I was on the, the program, um, ABC's uh, Seeing is Believing, the Peter Jennings special, long time ago, and uh, I think it was 2004, 2005 that came out, if I remember right. One of the, the, the things that they did with the program is they had several experiencers on telling their accounts, and then they would mix in a woman from Harvard, uh, Susan Clancy, uh, to give her um, sort of take on what was happening. And um, she really came out swinging against the experiencers. And in fact, she wrote her own book on it. I think it's, I, I might be paraphrasing the title, but it was something like how people come to feel that they've been abducted, something like that. And one of the things that she um, argues is she goes, I know um, people have experiences in their bed. They think they're taken by aliens, but really what they're encountering is sleep paralysis. And, and she goes on to say something along the lines of, she goes, I know because I've had sleep paralysis myself. I know what they're going through. Uh, it's just that I'm scientific enough to, to understand what's happening. To which my response is, I have had sleep paralysis, and I imagine a lot of people out there have as well. And I have had encounters. I have had straight-up contact encounters. And so... I I know the difference between sleep paralysis and other types of encounters because I've had both. I you know I've had encounters that were nowhere near a bed and nowhere near a sleep, and and to and to say that some of the things that have happened to me that I include in what I share, it could potentially be sleep paralysis. That is that is not true. I I've been paralyzed in bed i felt a tingling sensation and a sort of odd feeling but you know that is what it is it's a completely different phenomena than um being on a hill in a park with somebody else and and three beings come up so so do some people have sleep paralysis and say oh so this is an abduction well that wasn't really an abduction this was just sleep paralysis I now know the answer to this. Sure, that happens. Um, I I am of a perspective that I've had both, and I know the difference. But to many people, I think, yeah, they probably have sleep paralysis, and and then say that they thought they had an abduction event. Yeah, of course. I, I bet you. I I can't put the numbers on how many people that's been something that's happened, but sure, I bet that happens. And, well, here's, and we, here's the here's here's one of the problems that I have with this whole whole discussion of sleep paralysis, and I've talked to Kathleen Martin about it, for example, that there is no protocol to separate an experience of sleep paralysis from an alien abductions. In a, in a lot of the cases, what the person who has actually suffered from sleep paralysis talks about are the same things that someone who's been abducted talks about, and I explored a case in. 1976, with a woman named Pat Roach, and I am convinced now that she experienced sleep paralysis 
as opposed to an alien abduction. Given the discussion that, that went on around that, I think the problem with that case is James Harder was the fellow that I used uh, through APRO to help with the hypnotic regression of her. And now in today's environment, I can look back at how he operated and I can see how he led her into the p places he wanted her to go and avoided the places he didn't want to go. He was looking for a validation of the Barney and Betty Hill case. And he was using this as doing it. I am now convinced based on everything that I have, and I was the first one to talk to her. She actually sent me a letter um, talking about the, the the things that she said she knows how this could happen. And, and I went out to investigate that with uh, James Harder. And this was a case of sleep paralysis. And in sleep paralysis, as, as you say, you, you wake up and you have this feeling of paralysis. But there's also about 80% of the cases that a person with sleep paralysis feels there's some kind of entity in the room with them. And so yeah. I, I can see how this can be taken by a researcher who has a bias leaning toward sleep, uh, leaning toward finding an abduction experience would manipulate the situation to take it into the direction of alien abduction as opposed to um, trying to find out whether there is a more terrestrial explanation for it. And I think we have to be aware of that. And I know Kathleen Marden talked about establishing some protocols to separate sleep paralysis from alien abduction, but I don't know that those uh, protocols have ever been established. Fair enough. And, and, and of course, in my defense, you know, I, I bring out the whole don't throw out the, you know, the baby with the bathwater because there are some people, like I said a moment ago, that probably have sleep paralysis and then, you know, subjectively take the explanation um, somewhere where they necessarily shouldn't. Um, that, sure, that happens. Yeah, I, I, I believe that's one of the things that happens. Some people actually get taken. Some people have sleep paralysis and, and make hay out of it and, and say that they've been abducted. In two situations, um, and really all I can do, and really all I should do, is defend myself and my my experiences rather than talk about my uh, experiences with other people that have had this type of phenomena happen to them because uh, I really think that's the most valuable way to approach this. Now, two situations I could point to that occurred in my bed, um, one of which uh, I wasn't paralyzed at all. They didn't paralyze me at all. They just came into my room. Uh, there was no paralysis. Uh, I was just they just, you know, um, they came to me. Uh, there was a, uh, there was a, they actually, there were three grays. They had brought a hybrid with them into my room and they wanted to see how I would interact with her. So there was no value in having me paralyzed. The whole time uh, I was lucid, I was awake, I was able to move. There was no paralysis. And then another situation uh, where I was paralyzed when they came to me was the situation where they had taken me on board, giving given me a cut on my arm, and there was a scar the next day. I did not have that cut on my arm when I went to bed the previous night. I had the cut on my arm when I woke up the next day. And then it was followed later that afternoon, that, that same afternoon afterwards, with the experience I mentioned a little bit earlier, where the gray mist came into the backyard with the gray entity in it, and, um, you know, there was the other witness to that. But 
uh, so it was a situation, well, if that was sleep paralysis, how did, you know, I cut my arm during sleep paralysis and it magically healed overnight. So uh, I, I don't include any of the things that I describe as if there was anything that happened to me where I could have been like, you know, that that might have been sleep paralysis, but it felt like an abduction. I don't I don't talk about any of that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't talk about anything that is on the fence. I only discuss things personally that have enough going for them that it wasn't some, uh, you know, I, I didn't misconstrue some sort of medical phenomena for an actual in, encounter. Well, you've had ongoing experiences since you were two years old, from what you've said. Mm -hmm. So you can expect these encounters, not on necessarily a regular basis, but these encounters. Have you ever tried to set up any kind of video cameras or gather video evidence? So the last thing that had happened to me of, of any sort of substance, again, it was when I was about 30. So me just having turned 50 last week was about 20 years ago. Um, I didn't really have anything handy at the time. That I mean, technology now is super easy, right? Um, you could pick up these little, um, you know, remote, e these little easy-to-use cameras that hook into your app on your phone or whatever. Yeah, but I, you know, that wasn't readily available back when I was having these types of experiences on a regular basis. I don't know that I've had anything that is really worth talking about uh, in the last couple decades, but. What I know of the times that MUFON had tried to use technology um, right around the like early 2000s, a lot of times the technology would fail when uh, the the recording technology would fail on nights where the the experiencer claimed something happened to them, and it's something that I hear quite a lot that. The beings know that um, they understand our technology. They know how to thwart it. Um, one of the best uh, encounters that uh, sightings that MUFON had, I think this was, two, was it 2013, I believe, was the case. Uh, these gentlemen that were up in Canada um, hunting, and they saw a barbell-shaped object. Uh, the, the gentleman, the primary witness, he went uh, to record it with his phone, found that his phone wouldn't work. He had a video camera, switched to that, and found that the video camera didn't work either. It wasn't until the object flew away that his technology started working again. And, you know, there were three witnesses to it. The guy was a contractor for the defense uh, agencies. And, uh, I mean, he was a, a solid witness, and it was it was a fantastic case. But Well, let me, let uh, me interrupt here. Mm -hmm. For a couple of reasons. Number one, um, I've talked to Robert Powell about that case on this program. For those of you who are interested, I'll put a link in my blog that you can, you can link to um, Robert Powell's discussion of this specific case. But there was evidence left behind with the failure of the equipment. There were there were blank spots. There was an underlying audio, I believe, uh, that gave some kind of credence to what they said. There were three separate witnesses uh, to the phenomenon. So it was... Um, and, and it wasn't an abduction type scenario. So it, it yeah. you know it diverts a little bit in that, but that is a very interesting case. Uh, let me say this, your website is www.experiencer, 
Me. The books are Experiencer Raised in Two Worlds and Experiencer When Two Worlds Collide. I will be back right after this with Bill to talk a little bit more about this. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this, so please stick around. Discussing alien abduction, or the term that Bill prefers, alien experiences, I suppose. Um, when we went away, we were talking about the gathering of some kind of evidence, video evidence or electronic evidence of some kind. Um, from what you said during that brief discussion, I understand to say you haven't had an experience in the last 20 years or so? Uh, that is correct. Um, there is... Um, a broader um, perspective uh, on what's been happening in terms of um, it runs, the phenomena runs in the family, but myself, I haven't had anything as directly um, definable as an abduction or contact experience in a couple decades. And uh, since uh, I, I'll stop at that point to say that I'm not the only experiencer in my family, but I, I choose not to talk about what happens to the rest of my family. Pardon me for 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 putting it out that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Now there's all kinds of questions asked because here we've got a possibility of some kind of corroborative evidence, even if it is just uh, a more witness testimony as opposed to something electronic or independent. And you say, well, we we have these additional witnesses, but we're not going to talk about it. And I understand that. I mean, if, uh, I, I am to the point where I, I feel often that I'm intruding on people's lives when I start asking them questions about their UFO experiences and some kind of enter those discussions, um, sticking my nose in where they don't really belong. Well, so I'll let you get away with that because I <laughs> kind of understand that. I, I kind of understand that. But it also sets up a situation where you could gather electronic evidence if you attempted to do so, or possibly could have do that. But I guess I guess it also moves to the question: Why were you selected uh, for these experiences? How did how did that come about? Do you have any clues why you were the one singled out? I don't know. It's a it's a you know a percentage of people have this happen to them. Certainly describe these type of phenomena, it's just like a you know a. A percentage of people um, get a specific type of disease, we'll say, just, you know, or win the lottery, you know, that, that sort of thing. With regards to a pattern, the closest I can look at to um, something that provides an explanation of any type is that it, like I said, uh, it runs in my family. It's on my mom's side of the family. And so I, I think that, you know, it's just one of those things that, uh, that that's where I got it. Do you know what their purpose is? What was the purpose of doing this? I think because we're here. Um, I think if people, our, our species, found another world out there, 
with uh, a species that wasn't up to our level of technology and we were able to access their world and be able to study them and up close and possibly in an intrusive fashion. I, I think people will do that one day. We'll find some planet out there and we'll just sort of poke our noses in and, um, you know, see what we can learn. Um, I just think that uh, we're just a little bit lower on the food chain of another world that happened to get to us before we got to uh, some other world of a lower technology than us. Well, that kind of poses the question, what do you think of alien, ancient alien theory? Um, okay. okay, so for me, um, the, the areas of my focus would be the abduction and contact phenomena, specifically as it happens um, to myself, those that I get a chance to meet, um, as well as the UFO phenomena here in Michigan, being a representative of the Michigan chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. So anything, for example, if you were to ask me about ancient alien theory or even Roswell, things like that, um, my, you know, my disclaimer is my thoughts on that are, are completely subjective because of my inability to really directly access anything that, that counts as proof. Having said all that, I absolutely think it's very possible that if somebody's visiting our world now, they've been doing it for hundreds, even thousands of years. Uh, you know, if the the universe is obviously as old as it is, um, to me there there's no reason to think that there was a specific year this type of phenomena must have started happening. Like, you know, like if you say, oh, this phenomena absolutely started in 1947 or whatever. Well, there's there's citing uh, data before that, obviously. And so um, who gets to say what the, the, you know, that, you know, inaugural year was of the UFO phenomena here on Earth? And but so that's, really, I, I, that's yeah. really not answering the question, because okay. the ancient the ancient alien, ancient astronauts theory is that they came down and they assisted mankind in its evolution to civilization. And so the real question is, do you accept that idea that they've interacted with us and moved us along um, the path to civilization? Or are they just merely observers gathering their data as, and pardon me, Jane Goodall, for saying, you know, you observe them from outside to understand their society. So, I mean, do you, do you think that the ancient astronaut theory is correct, that they uh, helped uh, build our civilizations? Yeah, now that I have your definition of it, um, possibly. I, you know, who, I, yeah, for me, the, the jury's really out on that. I don't doubt that they may have been visiting us, um, whether or not they had any direct hand in things. Um, you know, if you look at motive and opportunity, certainly they had the opportunity and what would, what might their motive be? Um, you know, possibly they, you know, they felt that there would be no issue and coming in and lending a hand to a, a primitive species as we were. And, um, when they realized at a point where we were technology, you know, our technology had reached a certain point they decided to hold back because at some point we would no longer view them as gods and, and try to view them as equals. And um, that would be problematic for them. And that's why we see potential 
evidence for it possibly in the past um but then they backed away at a certain point but i don't know again that's that's it's my subjective opinion if it entertains anybody to hear it <laughs> well that's our whole purpose here is entertain people <laughs> but the, the thing i the problem i have with ancient astronauts theory for example is they if they uh, have the ability to cross interstellar distances they obviously have metallurgy and we've got um these beings coming down and the best building material they can find is stone. You know, they supposedly erected the pyramids. Uh, why, why didn't they introduce the metallurgy they have? If they're helping them build the pyramids and these other ancient wonders, why didn't they introduce uh, some technology that would have been even more useful, such as metallurgy and things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> and we have no I don't... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I really, yeah, I don't have a good response to that. Well, the other thing, the other thing that bothers me, and I took astronomy while I was in college because, frankly, I could, and uh, so I understand the distances between stars or among stars, I should say. The nearest star system is four point one light years away. It's Proxima Centauri with Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri. Um, the other, other stars are within 10, 12 light years away that we've discovered exoplanets around. But the distances seem to suggest that travel among the stars is going to take decades, if not centuries, uh, unless you can master getting very close to the speed of light, and then you have the problem of the acceleration and deceleration and, and all of that sort of stuff that go along with it. So the question the question becomes, and I guess I could say I understand that that our technology doesn't allow us to do that. But does does that thought ever cross your mind that there's some technological difficulties in interstellar flight that, that uh, may be impossible to defeat? Well, um, no, I absolutely, I, I, I have no reservations um, that they, they can come here um, without any sort of the issues that we have with our, our modern day technology. I think a big error in um, relying heavily on modern science is that if you look at you know, the, the scientific arc, you know, if you go back several hundred years ago and say, you know, um, how, you know, is it possible to get to the other side of the world that same day? And people say, absolutely not. You know, you can't put enough paddles on a boat to get to the other side of the world. You know, it, it just, it, there's a limitation in our thinking just because we don't know what we don't know in terms of being able to, to get from here to there. And it's possible that they, it, it's not just a planet-to-planet -planet scenario. They may be from some other dimension, however, that's best defined, where they're able to phase in and out of our reality in a way that we our imaginations can't even come up with. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I just, I think the, it's very easy to just look back at uh, human history, and then if you were to go back, like I said, to any given point in time and ask some questions about how you do something um, without our level of technology, they're going to come up with some uh, creative answers, possibly, but for the most part, they'll say, no, that can't be done. But, you know, given time, we've been able to achieve a lot of things that, that you know, they used to say could never be done. And I think the the same is true. Yeah, you know, I, I think as time goes by, um, we'll you know, 
I, I don't think we should sell ourselves short that we won't be able to figure it out ourselves. How well, to I get there? I think I think the point is we have a limiting factor in the universe, and it's pretty well established. That, that's it, and it's the speed of light, uh, and we can't come close to that. Uh, Again, it, I think that's our limitation of imagination at this point. I think that as time goes by, um, that thought of of a, such a heavy reliance on the speed of light is is going to seem quaint. I think at some point in the future we we haven't gotten there yet but i, I really think that we're you know we're limiting we're limiting ourselves to how we think the universe works now without a fuller understanding which will progressively get over time but the scientific experimentation for the last hundred years has up, upheld the speed of light as being the limiting factor and when we talk about the evolution of science, and I understand science evolves and things that we would have seen as impossible 50 years ago. I mean, the, this conversation would have been impossible 50 years ago with the various hookups in the various locations and how we're, we're putting it out for people to listen to in their homes. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the uh, Internet giving us the better better uh, communications than the Star Trek communicator. We have the entire history, uh, knowledge of the human race in our in our cell phone. So I, I get that. But the scientific experimentation that we've looked at for the last hundred years hasn't provided us with any way to cross the interstellar distances. Sure. We're just not there yet. That's 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 my opinion. We just haven't <laughs> cracked the nut yet. So, so you're not going to tell me how it's done, so that I can become extremely wealthy by uh, <laughs> suggesting how to uh, defeat the speed of light. Yes, uh, somebody, yeah, somebody that's a lot smarter than me about that type of thing uh, um, will figure it out. Hopefully, it's my son because he's pretty crafty that way. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, we're going to have to take another break here. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about UFO experiences, maybe move it less to a, from a less scientific discussion into something more about what your exact experiences were and that sort of thing. The website is www.experiencer.me. The books are Experiencer, uh, Raised in Two Worlds and Experiencer Two Worlds Collide, and they're available at Amazon. Uh, and that sort of thing. My books, I, I think Encounter in the Desert, which is the Lonnie, Zago, Lonnie Zamora Socorro sighting, tried to run all that together, um, provides a, dare I say, a different perspective to uh, the Zamora case and adds some evidence that, that hadn't been well researched prior to looking into it in depth and the, the development of additional witnesses and that sort of thing that makes the case a little bit stronger for the uh, experiences of Lonnie Zamora back in 1964 and the way the Air Force treated the case, which is uh, which is extremely uh, interesting. And take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, which I think is a cold case examination of where the Roswell case has gone and where it will go and provides um, some insights into where we are on that. We will be back right after this. You're listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this, so please stick around. We are back discussing 
alien abduction, also known as alien experiences, I guess. Um, normally, I point out in the um, some place in the program that we're practicing social distancing because I'm not in the studio with the producer, nor is he in the studio with the guest. We are scattered all over basically North America. Uh, but I didn't bring that up today because I am now fully vaccinated. I am one of those people that have been had both shots. I'm ready to go out and, I guess, party down, as, as they say, get ready to get back to normal. I just mentioned that as a, sort of an aside and give you an idea of where we are in the universe today. Um, when we went away, we were talking, I think, in theoretical terms, I guess is the best way to put it. Because, I mean, currently we can't travel interstellar distances, and I am of the opinion that at some point we may be able to defeat that, but not by traveling at the speed of light, but other ways of defeating the distances. And I think physicists have talked about that. So I'm going to move us back into Bill's experiences. And I'm going to, uh, I, I'm intrigued by this idea that your first experiences with, experience was when you were two years old and that you re, actually remember that. I was, I was curious about that, if you could give us a little bit more information. Okay, so with regards to um, my memories, I also have other memories from two and three. Um, in fact, my memory of age three is I almost fell into Niagara Falls. <laughs> Um, my brother had lifted me up. Uh, we were on the uh, the Canadian side, and he lifted me up on the wall, and I slipped, and he luckily caught me. So, um, <laughs> um, if that if the the alien wasn't my first memory, I you know I certainly would have had other uh, interesting first memories. But yeah, I was in my crib. I had not fallen asleep. Uh, it was warm. the The curtains were open, and light was coming in. And as I lay there in the crib, this little being came in. To me, the, the closest thing I could approximate it to was a skeleton. But it didn't look skeletal, fully skeletal. It clearly had flesh over its face. But still the giant eye sockets, which were filled with giant black eyes. And the thing looked down at me, just sort of regarded me momentarily. I screamed for my parents. Um, and they told me from the other room, they didn't even get up. They just, my mom just said, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. Like, go back to sleep. I haven't even been asleep. But, uh, after a moment, the thing, uh, after it was done looking at me, walked out of the room and yeah, that's my earliest memory. When you say walked out of the room, did it use the door? It walked, uh, it walked in the open door to my room and walked out the open door to my room. So it didn't it didn't didn't manifest itself through the walls or anything like that. I think you know some of the people have talked about them able to move through walls. I've seen that, um, but not at not at that time. Yeah, I, one of the experiences I had. The, I, in fact, I even mentioned a little bit earlier when they had brought a hybrid in. They slid in sideways through the wall and slid out uh, sideways through the wall. What did the hybrid look like? She looked mostly like us, um, just a little bit, I don't know if I want to use the word tainted, but that probably makes sense. Uh, they didn't have any clothes on her. She had a vibe and appearance that suggested she may have been about 16, something like that. Her hair was very disheveled uh, and sparse, um, and she was, I guess, had sort of a balding appearance. 
and she was very nervous, very shy. The 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 reason for her visit, uh, it seemed to be, how would I react to them bringing her into my room? The, there were three beings that stood behind her, and as I sat there in bed, uh, just puzzled by what was going on, and she seemed equally puzzled, I... <clears throat> I um, mentally projected to them, what's her name? And they responded to me, yes, what's her name? And so I said, I thought of the nicest thing I could come up with as a name. I said, Angel. And they uh, were excited. Um, they didn't physically display excitement, but mentally displayed, responded in excitement that I had given her a name. And um, they were satisfied with that, and then they left. It wasn't a via Boas type experiment then. No, no. Uh, there was physical contact with her um, that I had a couple years later, but it wasn't the type of um, intercourse thing that, uh, that, that other people describe and as you're possibly referencing, well, certainly referencing. But uh, two years later, I was on board and uh, she came up to me and much more confident, uh, much more assured. And she started to massage my temples with her fingers and said, uh, this should get the blood flowing, and I passed out. And that's the extent of that memory. So you, uh, you've had multiple contacts, obviously. And you say on board. Um, where was mm -hmm. the ship? Do you have any idea where it was? Where in the... Was it in orbit? Did you? Was it out in the backyard? No, I... Um, no idea. I, my memory starts and ends uh, on on board. And when I say on board, um, could it have been a structure and not a flying craft? Possibly. Um, I just knew that I was in a structure, and it felt like it was a UFO, though um, not having seen the outside, walking into it, or vice versa. Um, I just know that I was within a structure, yeah, admittedly. And the room that I was in was a, a sort of a activity room in that it had it was circular and it had a sort of a raised um, area, almost arena style, where the entities could look in uh, on and down at the room, what was happening inside the room. Let me let me uh, go off in a different direction here for a moment. You um, were at one time, are you still the state director for um, for Michigan? Still am, 17 years now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you investigate UFO sightings. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do, do you think that your experiences bias your investigations at all? Uh, well, I am not primarily an investigator. Uh, my duties uh, are, are don't have me doing direct investigation as much as uh, the much of the rest of our team. We have a, a solid chief investigator with Daniel Snow, a great team of investigators that he oversees. Um, and while every investigation does come across my desk, I do look at um, the cases reported. I do look at who these are being reported to. I do review them after the fact. And um, certainly everybody who has any skin in this game will um, understandably have some bias. I recognize, you know, that my bias is that, it, you know, something seems to be happening that involves 
uh, a combination of creatures and craft. Um, it it doesn't directly affect my work, my duty as a, a MUFON um, state director, because I am I don't have my hands directly into the investigative process as others do. Um, might every one of those single investigators have their own bias? Well, they they might they possibly they might probably do. But um, my biases don't interfere with uh, the work being done by the team. But I, I, what I'm looking at is um, more inclined to accept witness statements without following them directly to the end, the, pos- the possible end to get a find a mundane solution. How many of the cases that you see or are investigated by your team are explained in the mundane as opposed to how many are left as unknowns? Uh, it can vary year to year between 80 to 95 percent uh, of things that we can um, declare that we can identify. Um, the big thing that we're getting nowadays is people seeing Starlink satellites and uh, thinking they're UFOs. And, you know, we have people report Chinese lanterns or sky lanterns or drones, certainly, um, you know, all sorts of aircraft and celestial objects, you know. When we do an investigation, first of all, we have an all-volunteer army. Uh, all of None of our investigators are paid. So these are people, who, for the most part, either retired or working nine-to-five jobs who do this in whatever spare time they can and, to the best of their ability, try to identify things with the training we give them. And when they can't, they stop at the water's edge and say, this is unidentified. We don't make any sort of leap of faith that it's, you know, this type of being from this type of world, etc. You know, it's it's simply unidentified. And it's a very small percentage of cases that get to a get to that point. Now, if there was somebody that was paid in this position, um, and and you know, they they had, you know, their livelihood was to take it that extra maybe couple steps, you know, it might creep up the percentage of identifieds um, slightly. But, uh, you know, we, we do the best of uh, what we can with the training that's available and with the, the, the workforce we have, which is, again, an all-volunteer army. Do you get many um, cases of abduction or experience? Those cases do come in. Um, there is a separate track for those. And if you had Kathy Martin on your show, she may have very well spoken about that. The experience or research team that MUFON has is uh, a, a group that's sort of autonomous within MUFON. They don't have uh, the same sort of strict state boundary lines as the sightings do. And so if a, an abduction case comes in, a contact case comes in, they want to speak with somebody, and there isn't a UFO as part of the um, sighting report, if there's no UFO but there is a contact, it pretty much goes straight to our experience or research team, and they look into it. And so that's headed up by Kathy. So you don't really do uh, abduction uh, investigations then? Uh, if if there is a, a sighting of a UFO and it involves an entity, there is sort of that overlap area where um, somebody, uh, an investigator, um, a state investigator may actually dabble into that side of it but um, they are very separate types of phenomena in that when somebody sees a ufo they'll be like oh i saw a light at this particular height in the sky 
it did this type of maneuver. I saw it for maybe three seconds. And then when you talk about uh, contact experience, um, many times people are, uh, you know, uh, a fun term is frequent flyers. You know, they they have several encounters over uh, their lifetime, and they have a really long, very drawn-out story that is beyond just checking the boxes of what happened for a few seconds on, on some given night. It's, it's a very different type of phenomena uh, to report. And so um, the reporting forms that we have for it and the way to take in the, the information is, is understandably different because of that. Well, Bill, we've run out of time. Um, enjoyed the conversation. I think we've learned some things here. Thank you for taking time out of your day to share, us your, share your experience with, with us. So uh, thank you very much, and I will uh, be in touch with you later on. <laughs> well, thanks, Kevin. Yep, your Roswell book back in the day was an inspiration to a guy getting into the UFO field, so thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, once again, that's uh, www.experiencer.me, and uh, Experiencer Raised in Two Worlds is where experiences to when two worlds collide. Uh, as he mentioned, you know, I've done a number of Roswell books. I've done a number of books on UFOs. Take a look at them. I, uh, the Best of Project Blue Book takes a look at um, the Air Force investigation and some of the cases that haven't gotten a lot of uh, uh, exposure over the years. And I think that there are some very good cases there that we need to take a look at and gives us a different impression of what the Air Force was doing and how they were doing it or what they were doing and how they um, manipulated the situation and that sort of thing. So you, I think you'll find that to be an interesting book. Coming up is UFOs in the Deep State, and that'll be available in just a couple of weeks. And I think that'll be an interesting take on the UFO uh, phenomenon and how it's been manipulated by uh, the government entities. So there you go, take a look at that. And as they say, Roswell in the 21st century, I think gives you a different perspective of the Roswell case. Um, you have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. I'll be back in 167 hours, so thanks for tuning in.